This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media. With me, as always, is Russell Moore, CT's editor-in-chief. This week on the show, we're talking about what we learned from court documents about what Fox News hosts and executives really thought about the 2020 election. We're going to talk about Scott Adams and the difference between cancel culture and accountability. And we're going to talk about Saddleback and their disfellowship from the Southern Baptist Convention. So Dominion Voting Systems, a company that builds voting machines that are used around the country and really around the world, they are suing Fox News for $1.6 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars for defamation. Dominion was the subject of a number of conspiracy theories that were propagated by Fox and on a number of other media outlets after the election in 2020. And the theories were all about how Dominion's machines were manipulated and vulnerable to manipulation so that people could falsify the results and hand the election to Joe Biden. This month, there have been a number of filings in the case that have made public emails, text messages, testimony from depositions, and these are from Fox News hosts, executives, board members, and they've consistently shown a couple of things. One, that Fox News executives and board members knew that these theories were lies. And two, the Fox News and hosts themselves, people who pushed these theories, had people on the air to promote these theories, people like Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram in particular, also knew that these theories were lies. Just a couple highlights from some of the reporting on CNN. They highlighted that Rupert Murdoch, the owner of Fox News, said that it was wrong for Tucker Carlson to host conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell after the election. And when asked why he continued to allow him on the air, he said this. He said it, it was a business decision, quote, it's not a red or blue, it's green. And then behind the scenes, Paul Ryan, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives, was repeatedly warning the Murdochs, uh, again, the owners of Fox News, to stop allowing the spread of election lies. At one point, he said that they should move on from Donald Trump and stop spouting election lies. He was pushing on the Murdochs that the people who believed these conspiracy theories did so because they were getting a steady diet of information telling them the election was stolen because they believed Fox to be credible. Uh, in the New York Times, they cited a, an exchange between Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram. Tucker admitted that he knew that they were spreading lies. He included Sidney Powell in this in particular. He said, Sidney Powell's lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane. Laura Ingram responded to him by saying, Sidney's a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy, referring to Rudy Giuliani. And yet, if you go look at the records, you will see that Sidney Powell continued to feature regularly on both of those programs, as did Rudy Giuliani. So, Russell, what are we to make of this particular moment, these revelations? Well, I was very much in agreement with my friend David French, who did a piece, uh, his uh, column in the New York Times last week, about this difference between truth and representation, and that that's really what's at the heart of this. It's not just that this is, as Rupert Murdoch put it, green, making money. It's why this makes money, to have people saying things that they really don't believe to be true. And David's argument is because that's what people expect, is not necessarily that they're going to get information or, or have their minds change, but to have the viewpoint that they already have reflected back to them. And, you know, that is not just a Fox News problem. That's not just a right media problem. We find this all over the place. I mean, I, I know people who are on the left who will constantly kind of say behind closed doors, yeah, I think some of the gender ideology stuff on my side is getting kind of crazy, but they can't say it out loud because mm -hmm. the, the whole point is to signal I'm one of you. I'm part of your tribe. I'm here to represent you. And the reason I think we ought to care about that 
is not just because of what it does to the country, but if you think about it, that's exactly the same dynamic that's almost always at work within the church, is we have this pressure to say back what people already think in order to say, hey, stay with us, don't move down to the church down the road, from actually telling the truth as we see it in a way that can actually transform people's lives. I mean, that's a real pressure on people right now. And ultimately where it leads, if people want you to represent what they already believe, at first they're going to love it. That's why Paul talks about teachers who will fulfill their desires of their itching ears, the audiences. They'll love it. Ultimately, though, you lose trust altogether, and people get to the point where they don't even know what to believe ever, and it all just becomes a cynical kind of power play. And that's a dangerous place for a country to be. It's a dangerous place for a church to be. It's a dangerous place for a soul to be. And it's a two-way street, right? One of the things I've seen for a number of years now is pastors who are so wearied by the reactions to their churches, if they say anything that sort of goes outside of the the sort of comfortable cultural bubble that people are used to living in. I remember there was a story I heard about the Sunday after January 6th. Someone made sort of a comment of lament or in a prayer made a comment of lament about the events of that day. And you would think that that should be uncontroversial. Like, hey, it's a real bummer that we live in a country where things are so divided that people raided the Capitol. And there was something to the language of it or whatever that I hate the word triggered, but clearly triggered Mm -hmm. people to Mm -hmm. react in such a way that his his inbox and the inbox of others in the church just kind of filled up with these reactions. And so it's an incredibly wearying thing where not only is there the pressure in the sense of like, I want to keep these people in the fold, but there's also the pressure of you will be punished if you go against the crowd, like not just in that people will leave, but they'll also make your lives miserable. Yeah. And because you're not uh, saying, I mean, we have a a literal biblical example of this that's become kind of in our language that a lot of people don't even realize is biblical and that shibboleth. You could tell where people were, whose side they were on, on the basis of how they pronounced that word shibboleth. And that often is what actually is happening here is, are you one of us or are you not? And when you're in a really tribal sort of time, that becomes extremely important. And it doesn't even have to be with these big issues like the election or January 6th or something. Those pressures can be as simple as, for instance, I knew a pastor who was in a congregation that had really been taught kind of a dispensationalist, pre-tribulational kind of view of uh, Bible prophecy. There's a rapture of the church, and then the tribulation happens, and only after all of that does Jesus come back. People who had spent a lot of time really reading left-behind novels back in the day and had prophecy charts and whatever. And the pastor just said, you know, I could get up and preach on what I think the Bible actually teaches about this, but who wants the grief? And so instead he could just use language that would kind of make it sound like that's what he's talking about. But I mean, when God's called you to actually teach the Bible Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and, and not only that, but people have to be able to trust you because it's one thing when you're just expecting, oh, I want my host to tell me what I like, or I want my pastor to tell me what I like. But if people have to trust you to be there when they're in hospice care, guiding them through what to do with their sense of guilt before God. Mm. They really need to know that you're telling the truth. It's interesting. I think when you think about what this story is revealing, I mean, the extent to which this is just layer upon layer of lies, of self-conscious lying, and of the sort of internal negotiations that are just very pragmatic about audience and money, right? Mm. I mean, that's just evident all the way through this thing. It's had me thinking for the last week or so. Of course, lying in politics is nothing new. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can go back to even like antiquity and Greek philosophy and all of this. They would just talk about how lying in politics is to be expected because there's a kind of idealization that we project on politicians that we expect from what can happen in in public life. Yeah. So lying is nothing new. Media bias is nothing new. Like Mm -hmm. that's been something that people have written about and complained about for as long as there've been pens and ink. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the extent of this in the U.S., in our culture, in our world, this does feel like something new. 
to me. Yeah. And I mean, part of it, though, is media bias can mean a whole spectrum of things. So media bias often can mean that because you have people who are working on uh, stories or writing opinion and they live in a particular kind of bubble, they don't understand other people and they don't have all of the right questions to ask, as opposed to a kind of journalism that isn't fact-checked at all. Or if it is fact-checked, the fact-checking goes out the window because you ask, well, what does our audience want to hear? I mean, Mm -hmm. the, the first is subconscious in most ways and can be corrected by laying out what the facts actually are. When you get to the point where nobody actually expects you to tell the truth, that's a different kind of problem. And that's really where we are in a time in which we can just select what media sources we want to hear, if any at all. Most people, I would say right now, get their news from whatever social media platform they prefer. Well, you can follow or friend the people that are going to reflect back to you what you want to hear. One friend of mine calls this um, media safe spaces. You can mm-hmm. feel safe by hearing the whatever it is you expect, and then you don't have any idea what even the range of the debate actually is. And it, it's a circle because if you have media platforms saying, well, we need to do what our audience expects from us, and then they do that, then that props up those beliefs and it just it just doesn't stop. It keeps yeah. cycling that way. Well, and to wave the institution's flag one more time, right? One of the things I think is fascinating in the post-blogger era, right? Yeah. Where information's accessible, you know, YouTube's motto for a long time was broadcast yourself. Mm-hmm. And so this accessibility to information and the fact that people can provide an unmediated quote-unquote take on mm-hmm. anything now mm-hmm. has seem to have shaped the landscape in such a way that, you know, you once lived in a world, I mean, if you think about the era when there were, you know, three television networks and four or five like national newspapers that were kind of the respected institutions. And yeah, there was bias, but there was also a sense of accountability in the sense that because people were sort of living in these same spaces and because these sources understood themselves to be in competition with one another, Mm -hmm. when somebody got something wrong, There was a rush to correct sort of across all of those platforms or across all of those brands, right? Yeah. And I mean, I was just this week with a group of uh, nonprofit local newspapers, people who are trying to reclaim local news sources because what's happened is you have all over the country where there used to be newspapers that would provide news about whether the sheriff was embezzling money or whether or not there was toxic waste in the water system and those sorts of things, those sources are largely gone in most places. And so you end up with people understand the big national sorts of stories that are going to get a lot of people talking about them, but they don't know what's going on in their communities other than what they're reading on the next door app which they know they just have to sort of go through the sludge of most of what is just arguing there. And so you end up with people not actually knowing anything about their communities. And it's equilibrium. It's like so many other things. You can't just have institutions that are guarding information because then you end up with corruption, abuse, everything else. Some of the things that we have coming from social media, for instance, are saying, hey, nobody's telling you about. You know, we need that mm-hmm. in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are all sorts of things we would never know if there weren't mm-hmm. people who said, hey, listen to me. I really need to tell you something that's going on. But if you have all of that, then you end up in a situation where nobody even knows what to believe or who to trust. And ultimately, then it just becomes... Well, we're all just telling each other the stories we want to hear anyway, so let's just do that well. I thought about that a lot this week, you know, just to bring it back to actually to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the pivotal moments in that story was in the fall of 2013 when Mark was interviewed on Janet Mefford's radio show and Mefford confronted him on plagiarism in his books. Mm -hmm. What was interesting about the moment was Salem Media, the station that owned her show, cracked down on her and her producers for that Mm -hmm. segment. And you saw publishers and others kind of react very negatively towards her. But then you had these independent bloggers and journalists and whatnot who began to follow up and 
lay out the facts and it was very clear. So that's one of those instances where it's like the dispersed media voices provided that accountability that you're talking about. What's hard is how do you get people to listen to a perspective? The facts were clear. That happened November of 2013. The facts were crystal clear by December of 2013. Mm -hmm. And it was another 10 months before there was any real sense of accountability for not only the acts themselves of plagiarism and whatnot, but the church itself covering for it. The church as an institution creating a smokescreen and a hedge to protect the plagiarist and the liar in their midst. And it took a long time for sort of the fans and the crowd and the mob around Mars Hill to also come along to that because the narrative was, well, these people are all lying to you, Mm -hmm. right? All that to say, I feel like at the root of a lot of this is that there's a convenience in having these options of sort of narrow channels that we listen to, right? Uh, Living in these bubbles. One of the things that it alleviates for us is the need to think about anything. We don't have to think. We don't have to judge. We can just go, hey, these people are saying things that feel comfortable for me. They affirm the way I see the world. They affirm the way I feel good about myself for various reasons because of what they're saying. And being confronted with inconvenient facts that you've been lied to by people you love and respect or that you trusted, whether that's in the church or in the public, that's very disorienting. And I think we avoid that at all costs. Yeah. And, you know, part of it, too, is, and, and David mentioned this in his column, an issue of respect for one's audience. Do you have an expectation that your audience actually can handle the truth, to go back to a cliched uh, movie <laughs> reference here, and or at least to be treated like thinking people. And there's a there's an act of disrespect that's there. And to have that attitude toward people of they're, they're really just an audience to play to is a disrespectful one toward, toward one's audience. If someone says to you, how do I make sure that I'm not living in that kind of a bubble? What do you counsel them? Well, usually what I say is look at whether or not you have uh, some conflicting tension in the stories that you're reading about. And also occasionally just look around at sort of big sites or newspapers or television networks or anything else that would disagree with you and see the stories that are not talked about at all. Because that's really where we are now. It's not so much that you have, well, I'm getting a different take on the Jackson water crisis than someone else is. It's that I don't even know that there's a Jackson water crisis because the media platforms that I listen to don't even talk about it. Or, you know, maybe there's not an argument going on about how exactly to handle the East Palestine train wreck. It might be instead that you don't even hear about it because mm-hmm. of the platform that you're, you're looking at. And so look at that and then you can see kind of how out of balance you are and seek out sources that can balance. All right. We will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. So on February 22nd, on a YouTube live stream, Scott Adams, the creator of the cartoon Dilbert, went on a rant that's led a number of newspapers to stop publishing his cartoons. He had a book that was supposed to come out in September from Penguin Random House. They have suspended plans to publish that book. The rant itself, I mean, the comments themselves were sourced from this Rasmussen poll that was published online 
the poll asked black Americans whether or not they agreed with the statement, it's okay to be white. The results they published said 53% agreed, 21% were not sure, 26% disagreed. So it's worth noting that a number of pollsters have actually commented on the poll itself simply to say, this is kind of a terrible question to ask, like the way it's phrased. People who are saying, I'm not sure or disagree, it doesn't imply that they're saying it's not okay to be white. Some people might be saying, I'm not sure because the question's vague. Mm -hmm. Some people might be disagreeing because they're not white. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the question, again, the the vagueness of the question creates problematic answers in the first place. But nonetheless, Adams sort of riffed on this. He twisted the answers. He combined the not sure and disagreed and was saying to his audience, 47% of black Americans were saying it's not okay to be white. And in the rant that followed, you know, he was essentially saying he's done trying to be nice to people of different races. He said, get away from black people and on and on. It got worse as it went. So while his critics are calling him a racist, Adams himself and his defenders are talking about cancel culture. So we are back once again to the cancel culture yeah. conversation. Russ, what do you make of it? Well, first of all, the, the question, it's okay to be white. Do you agree with that or not agree with that? What's missing in a lot of this analysis is it's okay to be white is a white supremacist, white nationalist meme in order to make a point of white identity politics. So often when people say, well, no, I don't agree with that statement, what they're meaning by that is not I don't think that there should be white people out there. What they're saying is, I know what that means, and no, I don't agree with that. It would be like saying to a pro-life person, do you agree with this statement, a person has a right to choose what happens to their own bodies? Well, I mean, most people do agree with that in multiple different senses. A pro-life person agrees with that. We just would say that there's more than one person involved. But you say, okay, I know what you mean when you're saying that. And what you're saying is something that I disagree with. That's largely what was happening in that poll. Apart from the poll, though, I saw two things when I saw this. I mean, one of them is this is clearly a racist rant. Secondly, this is somebody that I wonder Where are his friends, his family members, his social support networks around him to say something is really, really wrong with you? Is this a cry for help in some way? There is such a thing as cancel culture coming in and saying any viewpoint that we don't agree with, we're going to shut down. That exists, but it's very hard to even talk about because you end up with situations like this that are just basic accountability to say, no, you can't go on and spew racist hatred and advocate for segregation and just continue on with our publishing your cartoons or continue on with us receiving you now that we know who you are. I mean, that's not cancel culture. That's just basic accountability. And you and I see this happen a lot. And we've talked about it here on the bulletin where there'll be, for instance, a pastor gets caught, you know, with a fake passport headed to Mexico with unmarked bills that he's embezzled. He gets caught in it, tries to make a comeback. And when people don't invite him to their pastor's conferences, says, I'm being canceled, I'm being persecuted, I'm David being chased. I mean, you know, that that kind of, you know, that's, no, that's not what's going on. This actually connects, I think, to the, the first topic that we're talking about here, too, because I think part of the weird wave of support that you see for Adams and some of the people who are waving the flag and saying, well, this is cancel culture here, they're coming into this not recognizing the fact that it's okay to be white is a white supremacist meme in the first place. Like I've seen a number of people basically saying like, yeah, what Adam said is over the top, but look at the racism in people saying it's not okay to be white. Right. And there's just this utter lack of awareness. Jonah Goldberg has written about this, that there's this phenomenon that's evident that when you call people racist, they tend to act more racist. Mm -hmm. And so that, that seems to be in the water in the conversation around this in ways that I think end up exacerbating the problem. Clearly what you said about Adams, I think is exactly right. This is a guy who needs help. This is a guy who's got serious problems. And Adams has been off the rails for a very long time on this stuff. For people who followed him, this is absolutely nothing new. What I think has disturbed me about it is 
there are people who are apprehensive about condemning what he's saying for reasons that I think go a little bit beyond the sort of standard cancel culture narrative, if that makes sense. I mean, there, there was a cartoon, I don't remember where it was, a couple years ago of somebody shaving his head into a Nazi uh, swastika <laughs> and saying, look what you're making me do. Exactly. And uh, because there's this there's this uh, narrative out there as well, if everybody's going to say that you're racist anyway, then I just might as well be. Uh, well, no, that's not how this works. And the kind of moral relativism that's at work in that, along with, I mean, the fact that I had several people say to me with Scotty Adams, I don't really know what to make of this because at one level, at least you kind of know kind of the coded language often is gone with some of these people and you know exactly what it is that they're doing. On the other hand, though, this great replacement theory Right. sort of uh, racist view of reality, which is so fundamentally at odds with a Christian understanding yeah. of human beings and, and of reality. It, it's a deeply and darkly pagan view of humanity. The fact that that has been mainstreamed to the point that it's filtering out to Dilbert, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that ought to be really disturbing to us right now. Yeah. And I think that's part of what I'm getting at is like, there's a seductiveness to this kind of white supremacist language, white supremacist ideology Yeah, that it's a game of inches. Right. And so when certain defenders of Adams are leaving out the connection of the language and yeah. the history of someone like Adam, I mean, I think a lot of people are hearing this and they haven't heard that this is his 900th rant in the past seven years mm -hmm. that's just sort of wildly racist or conspiratorial mm -hmm. or whatever else. They're going, well, I like Dilbert. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. what's wrong with saying it's okay to be white? And so you create this sort of victimization narrative. But I, I think the alarm bells to me are how truly mainstream all of this is at the moment. Well, also because what we're seeing here, and you'll notice this with a lot of the popularization of uh, racist memes and white nationalist sorts of movements inside the church and outside the church, is that it's framed around this, aren't we naughty sort of mm -hmm. uh, kind of feeling of rebellion mm -hmm. that previously I think most people would have thought of in terms of kind of hippie counterculture. You know, you get up and call policemen pigs or celebrate uh, LSD in order to say, I'm not like my parents. And you kind of see that for what it is. That's often the very appeal of these white supremacist movements. They're reaching angry young men, usually, in order to say, here's a way that you can differentiate yourself. You're not like your parents or your church or your pastor because they're not based and you really are. You're in touch with what's really uh, going on. And it can give this sense of profanity in the literal sense of the word to racist ideas in ways that give them great purchase in a culture like ours right now. How much of this sort of thing. I mean, I think you and I could probably collaborate to come up with a couple dozen names very quickly of personalities, even inside of the evangelical bubble, mm -hmm. who would affirm everything Adam said and, and who have already over the last number of years. Yeah. How much of that, though, is a matter of, to go back to David French, what, what David calls nut picking, mm -hmm. that you have these sort of fringe outlier types that because of the nature of the extremism of the things they're saying sort of float to the surface and the, you know, critics, and this would be on the right and the left, like libs of TikTok would be a version of this on the left. Like look at how these people are and it becomes mm -hmm. a blanket for an entire kind of political spectrum that is not represented by these kinds of fringes. How much of that's going on here? Well, here's the problem. Even when that is going on, I mean, so if you look around, it's sort of, uh, yeah, in the vast majority of kind of mainstream evangelical churches, pastors are going to be the last place that you're going to find this kind of thing going on. But if the more mainstreamed it becomes and the more that it's framed as, well, 
we're the naughty ones that are being punished. Come join our group of people here. It starts to trend younger. And then what you end up doing in any organization or movement or institution is driving out the people who are sane <laughs> and who who actually, for instance, are Christian, and you end up incentivizing the people who will drive those people away, and then you get more of it. And so there's an entire kind of young evangelical, not the majority by any means, not even the plurality, but there's a kind of young evangelical who doesn't expect to grow a church, doesn't expect to be a great preacher or something like that, but expects to be an outrage troll on social media. And when you have older Christians who want to use that, they're scared of it, and so they platform it, then you end up getting much, much more of it, but with a shrinking group of people. What you Hmm. actually end up creating are a lot of people who say, oh, wait, so that's what Christianity is. I know that's wrong, therefore I'm not a Christian. Mm -hmm. When that's not at all what Christianity is, either in content or in basic character, basic Sermon on the Mount character, but that starts to become a self-fulfilling prophecy over time. I got to say, I think one of the things about this that was the most weirdly disturbing about it is how completely unsurprising it was to me. Yeah. This is stuff, you know, I think if you've been paying attention to it, and particularly if you've been involved and spoken publicly about anything related to sort of politics and race in the last seven years. Oh, yeah. Is that this is very familiar territory. So there's a degree to which the outrage of the moment is the surprising part because I'm watching it going, y'all, I've been, you know, this has been my mentions since yeah. <laughs> fall of oh, 2015. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think sometimes what happens, though, is if you're not paying attention, especially when you're dealing with a celebrity, if it's somebody that you're not kind of tracking and following all the time, and I mean, who really tracks the Dilbert right. guy? That much, uh, they, Then you turn around and say, oh, wait a minute. Uh, I didn't know this person's nuts. Right. <laughs> so it it does become kind of disorienting to, if, if you haven't been kind of uh, paying attention to Scott Adams' YouTube rants over the past several years, and all you know is kind of a Dilbert right. cartoon that you had on your, you know, on your dorm wall back twenty years ago or whatever, then it is kind of disturbing. Yeah. It, it's like um, right. you know Pete Davidson had this thing on Saturday Night Live not long ago about Kanye West where he had a red ball cap that said, make Kanye 2006 again, uh, because he was saying, you know, this is a guy who's a, he's a musical genius and he thinks that means that he's a genius in every other way. And so it's all, I'm just going to go off my meds and be my real me. And Pete Davidson said, you know, I really don't want my pilot to come on and say, hey, everybody, just let you know I've gone off my meds. I'm the real me here. <laughs> no, I want you to be able to fly a plane. So <laughs> something's really wrong here. And so if you just sort of stepped out of nowhere and looked around and said, wait a minute, Kanye is with a Nazi? No. Uh, and if, if you look around and say, wait a minute. Dil- the Dilbert guy is a crypto Nazi or, or, or a white supremacist. It, it just, it, it is kind of bracing when you see Absolutely. it that way. Fair enough. So, all right, we will be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. All right, finally this week, the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, has apparently discovered its ability to disfellowship a church. As listeners will know, there's been years-long series of scandals regarding the mismanagement of sexual abuse in the convention. Leaders who've been credibly accused of abuse have gone on to return to the platform. This is something we've discussed in previous episodes. Part of the reason 
Southern Baptists have been hesitant to create a system of accountability where they can disfellowship churches has been based on Baptist polity, essentially doctrines related to how the church is supposed to work. Churches are supposed to be autonomous. In the past week, they've proved that that's not the case. They have disfellowshipped the church. It's Saddleback Community Church, which was founded by Rick Warren. They were removed from the SBC, but not for anything related to abuse. They were removed for the ordination of women. Russell Moore, tell us what you think about this. You're triggering me, Mike. I know. Uh, I set that up. I set that up unfairly. <laughs> but uh, yeah. you know, here's here's one of the things: the Baptist Faith and Message, which is the Confession of Faith, the Southern Baptist Convention, my denominational home, does specify that qualified men are called to be pastor. That was articulated in the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, which had never been articulated in any other Baptist Confession of Faith, for the reason that. When you have churches cooperating together, they have to be able to decide, are we going to plant churches with women pastors or not? And so it was, how do we cooperate to do that? What drives me crazy about this is having been the person who's been in the middle of just fiery nuclear level backlash when J.D. Greer, who was president of the SBC at the time, and me would say, hey, the Houston Chronicle has pointed out a list of churches with some really unresolved questions about whether or not they have empowered or are empowering abuse. We should look into that. And the response being, you can't tell another church who can be a pastor or youth pastor. You can't violate the church's autonomy just by naming them and saying, hey, let's look into this to see if they're in friendly cooperation. But instead, you can have this narrowing, narrowing, narrowing constantly about this particular issue. And what's amazing to me, Mike, on this, and you know, I have Uh, fairly traditional views about uh, ordination. What drives me crazy about this is there are all kinds of things that the Bible talks about all the time. Baptism, Lord's Supper, that we can agree to disagree on, and we're just, you know, together for the gospel uh, in this, (laughs) and that's good. That's that's exactly the way that it should be, because you're saying, okay, we're seeing this from different perspectives. That doesn't mean that we're all right about it, but I understand the motivations and how you're interpreting the Bible to get there. But that can't happen when it comes to this. It just has to be narrowing more and more and more. So it's not just that you agree that there are some distinct callings for men and women. It becomes the fact that gender has to be the grid through which you view everything, Mm -hmm. and everything is slippery slope. I talked about this in my column in Christianity Today this month. I can look back on things that I would say and I would write in maybe my 2007 version of myself that I look back and say, that's so dumb. And, and the, reason, the, the reason that I would get there, though, is because I was saying, look at the danger of that slippery slope over there. Mm-hmm. And there is, a, or there is a real danger. I mean, and, and there are a lot of egalitarians who would say, hey, look, there are real ways that people can drift out to, well, we can't say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because that's patriarchal language, or let's just evaporate everything the Bible teaches about uh, sexuality. I mean, those sorts of things, that is really true. There's a slippery slope in the other direction too. Right. And I think that's one of the things that we have seen really clearly and probably more clearly than we've seen the other slippery slope is that A lot of times, people actually who differ on some of these issues have more in common with each other than they do with people who hold the same position, but who get there through, on the one hand, I mean, an egalitarian who thinks, I don't think that the Bible prohibits women's ordination, has more in common with a complementarian of a certain sort than he or she does with somebody who says, ah, Paul's a misogynist. You know, and a complementarian who says, I think there are some aspects of fathering and mothering within the church that are different, but for the most part, 
God is gifting men and women, and we have to empower the Priscillas as well as the Aquilas within our church, has more in common with a biblically faithful egalitarian than with a Doug Wilson or a Mark Mm -hmm. Driscoll. And so I think some of those categories are being shaken up right now, Mm -hmm. and I think for the good. But in the meantime, we see this. My son Samuel, who went with me for my last Southern Baptist Convention executive committee meeting, my last Southern Baptist business meeting of any kind ever, he came with me because he had asked my wife, he said, has dad had some sort of moral failure or something? Uh, And so I said, hey, come with me so you can hear the sorts of problems that they have with me when they read them all out. So he did. Mm. But what he said after was dad, because, you know, he, he was there and had to sit through hours of it to get to that part. He said, dad, the whole thing was about who is to be excluded and who's to be kicked out and who cares? I mean, who really wants to be part of this and why do you? (laughs) <laughs> and, and I think there's that mentality of, um, I mean, this doesn't hurt Saddleback, uh, whether you agree with Saddleback or not, doesn't right. hurt Saddleback, but it does hurt a sense of shared mission. I mean, th- there, there are ways that people could say, okay, here are some differences we have on whether or not women can serve in these particular roles or not without oh, well, if you don't agree with me entirely, you're a liberal and you're out. I have two thoughts on this as you were talking. One is this would probably be relatively uncontroversial if it weren't for the, you know, what is it, four plus years of history now of controversy around mishandling of sexual abuse. Yeah. People would basically be saying the Southern Baptists are being Southern Baptists. Right. It's Baptist polity. There are all kinds of Christian denominations and traditions that hold to some analog of complementarianism mm-hmm. that would have these same kinds of issues, right? Yeah. So in one sense, it, it, it would be a non-story except for these other controversial things. And you know, I don't know if you intentionally used the phrase together for the gospel, but I will because <laughs> it has been a top of mind thing for me in the last few years when these gender controversies have been ongoing in the midst of all the other sort of divisive, difficult, problematic, controversial things happening inside the evangelical movement. Yeah. I always think back to that because you look at the four people who started that massive conference, massively influential conference. You had two Baptists, uh-huh. a Presbyterian. And someone out of a charismatic tradition who understood himself to be an apostle. Yeah. And throughout most of the post-Reformation church history, we'll put it this way, in the early days of Protestantism, those four would probably have wanted to kill one another, right? right? Right. Um, Burn each other at the stake for heresy or whatever the case is. And so you have issues that are vastly more divisive historically, mm-hmm. but they're together for the gospel in these ways. And yet- And that's gender great. As a, yeah. No, no, I, yeah. Agree, I agree. And gender as a culture issue, though, becomes the dividing line in ways that all of those other things don't. And that is honestly a bit baffling to me. If we truly believe in first order and second order issues as a matter of conviction as believers, that is baffling to me. Well, I mean, you, we, we can even take it to a different level. Uh, but we had a, a controversy within complementarianism a few years ago about eternal generation of the, the son and uh, whether or not the son is subordinate to the father. Issues that are literally creedally defined uh, in the councils. And it's, well, you know, those are secondary issues that we can agree to disagree on. God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. if we if we disagree about who speaks on Mother's Day, then that becomes a, a, a who's in, who's out with a very bright line. That's not a healthy place to be. No doubt on that. So here's my question for you as somebody who was truly at the heart of the world of complementarian theology. Why is that such a central dividing line? Well, what I would say is because for some people, it feels more real Mm 
than other questions because they assume, well, the entire culture is moving in this direction of erasing distinctions between men and women. And so they would say, we're kicking back against that. So we've got to be really diligent on that. That's the story that they tell themselves. But I think you've got a confluence of things. I mean, I think you have some people who genuinely that is what they're concerned about. They're saying, okay, look, we have seen places that the first thing they do is to start saying, oh, well, don't pay attention to those passages of the Bible that are really countercultural. And so they're trying to, to guard that. You have other people who genuinely have some sort of real issue with women. I'm not saying that that's the majority of people by any means, but there is a certain kind of obsessive fear of women that I started to see in the sexual abuse context with just the things that some people would say behind closed doors, the way that they would view women, and the fact that we had in so many cases, one of the reasons that these concerns never came to the forefront is because women didn't have a place where they could speak. I mean, some of this is very recent I mean, uh, I have a conversation with Beth Moore uh, that'll be out here in a little bit, where she was talking about being empowered to teach the Bible at First Baptist Church of Houston with a very conservative and very widely respected pastor, uh, John Bisogno, back in the day. No one would have thought of, uh, well, we're kicking him out. But I think there gets to be this point where the first thing, and I've seen this happen with a certain kind of complementarian and a certain kind of egalitarian. There are just more of the complementarians. But if you start to say, okay, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to protect this issue, so we're going to form organizations to protect it, or we're going to form alliances to protect it. You emphasize it to the point that it becomes all out of kilter for you with how much the Bible actually does speak to it in a way that one loses perspective. And so you end up with a situation, I will sometimes see people who are up railing against what women are doing on the basis of 1 Timothy 2, who I know to be angry, quarreling, rage-filled people. You're like, hey, dude, the first part of 1 Timothy 2 is saying that (laughs) you're not qualified. Right. I mean, most right. of the most of First uh, Timothy two and three is talking about that. But mm-hmm. okay, we're not going to deal with that issue. That often we have people who just on the plainest reading of First Timothy two and three are not qualified to be serving as pastors or elders or whatever term you want. Instead, it's focusing on what's often an imaginary problem of women seizing unbiblical power in a way that just isn't the case. It's really sad, too, when you look at the fact that women are leading in all kinds of very biblical ways almost every Southern Baptist church. If the women were not leading in various ways, the missions of those churches would not go forward. And there would certainly not be a global missions presence. I have a little figurine over here right next to me of Lottie Moon, who was a Mm -hmm. great Baptist missionary, the greatest, I think, in Southern Baptist uh, viewpoint missionary or missions offerings named after her that, you know, she'd probably be kicked out now. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on this. You know, you talked about problem that some leaders genuinely have a just a, a problem with women. And something Rachel Den Hollander has talked a lot about is this sense that you get from a lot of Christian leaders, particularly that ascribe to a certain kind of understanding of gender in the church, is that women are fundamentally dangerous. Yeah. That the presence of women is fundamentally dangerous. And then the language sort of explodes from there about Proverbs 5 and you know yeah. Jezebels and all of this kind of stuff, where any woman gets you know, sort of lumped under this. I I remember at one point there was somewhere, I can't recall where it was, but Caitlin Beatty wrote an article in which she essentially argued, dear pastors, 
all the women in the world are not trying to sleep with you, <laughs> which, which is, you know, it's like fair point. Yeah. I had one of my uh, former ERLC staff members, woman, fantastic leader, who would talk about how terribly awkward she would feel just to get in the elevator at a denominational meeting with some men who would almost literally recoil. And she's like, dude, I, I do not want to seduce you. I'm trying to get to the next floor of this exactly. uh, conference. Exactly. I, I will say this, you know, regarding, so I think that is one of the, the, the issues behind this. I think another issue behind this is there's something about gender in an age where there is a lack of clarity and in an age where I do think we have an impoverished spiritual imagination. Mm-hmm. When that happens, we're really inclined towards a certain kind of literalism that's rooted, you know, that's the root of the fundamentalist movement. Mm-hmm. And we're inclined towards a materialism of sorts. And so because of that, like gender becomes this very black and white thing. And it doesn't surprise me that it occupies this inordinate space in terms of how we draw all of those lines. Because at least on that one, there's a degree of certainty about, at least within the evangelical movement, who's male and who's female. Well, yeah. And and it, it becomes a you, – you think about the hedges. Jesus is talking about the hedges around the law with Sabbath keeping, for instance, where it was, well, if you put enough guardrails around it, then you're not going to get close to it happening. And there are a lot of people who look at very real problems that are counter-biblical of kinds of gender ideologies that would say maleness and femaleness are all just uh, socially constructed. Well, we can make sure we don't come anywhere close to that if Mm -hmm. we just put enough protections around it. Problem is, you've built up guardrails that have pushed you outside of the Bible yourself. Right. And so you end up with, well, is it liberal to say that First Timothy doesn't have directions as to what the how the church ought to be ordered? Yeah. Is it also liberal to say that the sorts of uh, things that Jesus actually was sending women to do, including in the Great Commission, and that the Apostle Paul himself speaks of as co-laboring with him? Well, yeah, but that's just a cultural context. You push that. You're doing the same thing that you're trying yeah. to fight against. You're becoming right. exactly what you're fighting against. Right. And it's ultimately deadening. It hurts women. It hurts men. It's Genesis 3. It's Eve. Like, yeah. did God say you can't eat of any fruit in the garden? No, we can't eat of this tree. And we can't touch it. It's right. the extra hedge, which, right. like you say, it's you're already outside of the biblical norm. Well, this is a heavy week. To borrow a phrase from the folks over at the Commentary Podcast, we're a little bit in the crushing morosity territory this week. (laughs) I don't Uh, think so. (laughs) Good. (laughs) But uh, thank you all so much for listening. Dr. Moore, thanks for joining me again this week, and we will see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. Hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.